Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest Brexit developments as the political declaration for future relations emerges. Plus, we'll be discussing how and if Theresa May can get her Brexit deal through the House of Commons and what happens if it fails. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker. Alex Parker, our Brussels bureau chief, who is in the studio and not down the line. Whitehall editor, James Blitz, and columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Another week and Theresa May stumbles on with her Brexit offering. The coup against the Prime Minister failed to go anywhere and a leadership challenge seems to be on hold for the moment. Meanwhile, there was some movement from Brussels as the political declaration that outlines the basis for the long-term relationship between the UK and the EU was published. And yes, there are lots of uncertainties about what life is going to look like on the other side. So George Parker, let's begin with the failed coup. When we were recalling this time last week, Steve Baker, who's the organiser behind the European Research Group of MPs, said he was going to have the names by the end of Friday. Then it was by the end of Monday. Then it was sometime this week. And now we're told it's a process, not a moment. So what's been going on? Well, Steve Baker is supposed to be the master strategist behind the European Research Group. And uh, I think as Lyndon Johnson once said, the first rule of politics is learn to count. And in this case, Steve Baker seemed to be unable to count as far as 48, uh, which the numbers of MPs needed to trigger this leadership contest. And I think basically it just reflected the fact that the Eurosceptics were deeply divided on their tactics, you know, whether this was the right time to strike against the Prime Minister. I think they were concerned that if they did get the 48 names to trigger a leadership contest or rather a vote of confidence in the leader, they would probably lose it quite convincingly, probably. And that would mean that they wouldn't be able to challenge her for another year. And another group said, let's wait until we have the vote on Theresa May's deal in the House of Commons. And that's her moment of maximum weakness. That's the moment we should strike. In the end, they were totally divided on tactics and the coup fizzled out. Because you had the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Mr Baker saying we've got to get rid of Theresa May now because the policy and the person are now the same thing. But then you had others who were taking that opinion, Bernard Jenkin, who again, a long-time Eurosceptic Tory MP, saying don't do it because we'll lose and we stuck with her for the next 12 months. Yeah, I mean, they were sort of caught in a bind in the end because Steve Baker and Jacob Rees-Mogg raised the stakes. They were faced with a pretty difficult choice when last weekend came around. They either launched this vote of confidence against the Prime Minister, in which case they would have lost and looked weak and stupid, or they called off the coup, in which case they look weak and stupid. But either way, I'm afraid to say they end up looking rather weak and stupid. So Miss May is still pushing ahead with her deal. And I think things have actually become probably more difficult because there was a, a long debate in the House of Commons this week where MPs had their say on the deal. And there were about six positive opinions from the Tory benches, if I counted rightly, with close to 90 Conservative MPs saying they will vote against the deal. Now, of course, once the whips begin to turn the screws, those numbers will come down. But at the moment, the opinion in Westminster is not looking particularly good for the Prime Minister. 
stuff. No, it isn't. And I must admit, I thought that the political declaration that was agreed in Brussels this week would give a bit of impetus to the Prime Minister. So over the last few days, she's been on the front foot after the initial wave of uh, dissents against the Prime Minister after the withdrawal treaty was agreed last week. She had a few better days. You know, the second wave of cabinet resignations didn't materialise. The coup didn't materialise, as we've just been discussing, and things seem to be moving in her direction. I think she hoped that the political declaration would give her some extra impetus. It would provide a ladder down which some of her critics could climb. But in the end, the mood in the House of Commons this Thursday was as negative almost as it was the previous week when the withdrawal treaty was published. So she's still facing a huge task to get this through the House of Commons when it comes back for a vote in December. And just before we come on to the lovely political declaration, we also had a press conference from the Eurosceptics this week, which again slightly turned into farce when you had Jacob Rees-Mogg comparing himself to Captain Mannering from Dad's Army because of his failed coup. And this was when they were outlining their criticisms of the deal, which many of those criticisms are fair and justified in terms of handing over sovereignty, tying the UK into the EU's economic model and trading model for the duration. But they still don't have an alternative. They don't. That's the problem. And there are a number of Eurosceptics, including uh, Dominic Raab, the former Brexit secretary, saying that this deal is probably worse than the remaining in the European Union. I think lots of people would agree with that analysis. But given that this is where we are, it's very hard to discern what the plan B is for the Eurosceptics if they manage to defeat Theresa May's deal in December. I was just speaking to one of the officials very close to the group. and I said, what is your plan B? And he said, I honestly don't know. So the political declaration, Alex, explain to us what this is and what's in the document. The first thing you have to remember about this is the kind of nature of the document. This is a political declaration. It's not binding. It's political, which means that if the politicians, the governments change, so can the direction of this. It's aspirational. There was a chance that they were going to do something much more detailed that would really provide a template for the negotiators to have a kind of running start when they started this trade negotiation after Brexit Day. In the end, they've gone for the minimalist version, 26 pages, as Jeremy Corbyn said, a page for every month since the Brexit referendum. And what they've basically done is split the difference on all of the most contentious questions. We thought there would at least be an answer to the question of, is Britain in or out of the customs union? That is most definitely not answered. And you've ended up with something which is a kind of beast that's almost impossible to classify. The Prime Minister says this is a tremendous victory because it shows that Britain has a bespoke deal for businesses trying to plan on the basis of it. I think they would prefer to have it in one or the other category. The last thing is, It also doesn't tick the checkers box. This has very clear caveats all throughout that make absolutely certain that there is no such thing as frictionless trade outside the single market. When I read that document, it felt like we were pretty much back to square one because right from the beginning of these talks, as you said, the EU has said... You can't divide the four freedoms. You're in or you're out. And if you're out, that means the backstop. That means some kind of border. And that means trade friction. This document, again, is saying that. And this fundamental question that Sir Ivan Rogers, who was the UK's former ambassador to the EU, said, which is that the UK has still not had the conversation about where to strike the balance between control or sovereignty and keeping its economic interests protected. And at some point, somebody's going to have to make that decision. Absolutely. And the point is, though, that it doesn't necessarily have to come for quite a few years yet. The most important elements of this package are actually the kind of extension clauses to the transition that give a window of four years 
for this to be completed. And inside that window, there may well be another election, a change of prime minister, and the context, the political context in which the decision about control and sovereignty and what the platform is for this relationship will change. But the one thing I would say is, in that declaration, you can look through it and see a customs union emerge that isn't checkers, but is much more advanced than the Turkey relationship. And you can see the kind of elements of that coming together potentially over time. So, George, the key thing about this declaration is that if it was checkers, that would actually make life even harder for Theresa May because there are so many in the Conservative Party who don't like this idea. Labour isn't interested in checkers at all. So you could say in the way that it's vague actually helps Mrs May in the Commons. But on the other hand, the fact that it's not got anything clear or any decisions or any vision that's obvious there, it bolsters the argument of your sceptics that you're handing over $39 billion and not getting much in return. Yeah, I mean, the lack of clarity um, works in both directions. I suppose Theresa May hopes that it helps to build a coalition in the House of Commons, but you end up disappointing everyone. You know, you have someone like Greg Clark, the pro-European business secretary, who's concerned that the expression frictionless trade isn't in the document. Well, as Alex just explained, there's a very good reason why that isn't the case. And at the same time, you've got the Eurosceptics who think it's far too ambitious and the fount of all their problems with the whole deal, the Eurosceptics, is still not in the political declaration, but in the withdrawal agreement, the famous Irish backstop, which they think will lock Britain into a customs union and set us down a track we can't turn back on. So neither side was happy with this document. As I've said in the past, just because everyone hates it equally doesn't necessarily mean it's going to fall. But nevertheless, Theresa May's got a huge selling job on her hands in the next three weeks. Alex, let's look forward to the next couple of days now that we've got this summit on Sunday, which is when everything is meant to be rubber stamped off. The deal goes through the EU27 leaders and then Mrs May can come back home and sell it to an awaiting country. But we've begun to see some voices of member states not entirely happy with what's been said and done in this document and particularly complaints from Spain. What's been going on there? Was this just to be expected? And does this really threaten any prospect of signing off the deal on Sunday? This actually goes back to the one big concession that the UK did win in the final stage of the negotiation, which was a backstop that had an entire UK-wide customs union. And once you imported something about the future into this treaty that was supposed to be about a divorce, the member states started getting nervous and thinking, well, if this is something that could last indefinitely, then we have to check off our balance sheet of national interest. So you had concerns about fish, concerns about the level playing field and how ambitious that would be, concerns about Gibraltar, concerns about environmental standards that the Poles have been raising. And the negotiators had locked down the documents. So the question is, what do you do with these kind of pressures coming from the member states? And a classic technique in Brussels is the side declaration. This is something where one party, so the 27, agree amongst themselves how to interpret something else. And what we'll see is a probably a page-long side declaration that restates that they're going to be very vigilant on fish and they're going to be very vigilant on level playing field and they will be something i haven't seen the draft yet but something on gibraltar as well and whether this would be considered part of the future relationship and so that may emerge i suspect they'll try and draft it in a way that doesn't look too explosive while giving them something to sell back home as politicians but that's the only real risk in the next couple of days we're really heading into a summit that I mean, this is almost unthinkable two years ago that we'd be ending this first negotiation with 
almost 600 pages of documents without an all-night summit, without any kind of argy-bargy, without the Prime Minister ever being in a direct negotiation with those 27 leaders in a room. That's pretty extraordinary, and it's going to end on Sunday. And it's also extraordinary, George, because a lot of people said, you know, A, this could never be done, that there would never be a deal that could be struck. Let's see if this deal actually goes anywhere. But also there was never a complete breakdown that a lot of people predicted in these Mm. talks. There was stalemate and some very tough moments at times, particularly over the past couple of months. But from the EU side, it's obviously gone very well. But I think, Mm. you know, there's been a lot of criticism in the past couple of days, particularly from Conservative quarters, about how Mrs May has handled these negotiations. But I think there's a case to be made, actually, that Given where the balance of power lay and given the fact that EU had higher cards to play and played them pretty well, that the UK has not ended up in a wholly bad place. And if this goes through, the UK will become the first country to leave the EU in a smoothish way. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's probably fair. I mean, I think the talks have ended up, I guess, where lots of us would have imagined they might have ended up a few months ago with a sort of lowest common denominator political declaration about the future and basically the UK giving way on most of the EU's demands in terms of the divorce deal. But as you say, I mean, despite the squalls along the way, the Salzburg blow up and all the rest of it, it does actually seem to have landed relatively smoothly. And Alex and I can look forward to a beer somewhere down the Grand Place, hopefully on Sunday afternoon if this all wraps up, as we hope it does fairly early on Sunday. But in the end, you know, Theresa May made mistakes along the way. She raised the stakes too early by putting down these red lines about leaving the single market and the customs union, which were never... And the ECJ, crucially. And the ECJ as well. She raised the bar unnecessarily. She raised expectations on the Eurosceptic side, which were never going to be met. And as a result, she's sown the seeds of what will be a very bumpy next few weeks, which could ultimately lead to the deal being rejected in the House of Commons. So the key thing now is how Theresa May is going to sell this. And the strategy from Downing Street seems to be in a slightly odd way to overlook MPs and go to the wider country. So Theresa May has done two phone-ins this week, one on LBC and one on Five Live. She'll be doing sit-down interviews. She's been getting business leaders on site. And essentially, she's trying to make her case this is not a fantastic deal, but this is steady progress forward. Ignore the people who want to crash out and ignore people who want a second referendum. Mine is the only game in town. There's a lot behind that strategy, but ultimately it'll be worthless if she doesn't get more MPs on side. Well, exactly. I mean, her biggest card is the fact that if it's not this deal, it could be chaos, both political and economic chaos. And she's talked about the grave uncertainty that would face the country if the deal was rejected. So she is trying to go over the heads of MPs and trying to build a consensus in public opinion. And actually just talking to people in the real world and watching BBC Question Time and so on, you do pick up a bit of an echo of that. People saying, look, she's doing a difficult job in almost impossible circumstances give her a break. It's time to move on. We've had enough of this. And I think Downing Street is ripe to be tapping into that mood that actually people just want to move on from this and get it over and done with. There's a bit of human psychology about wanting to get it done by the end of the year, not having dragging into That's a very 20, British psychology 2019 as well. and trying to get business on board. And it's no coincidence that Theresa May had the Northern Ireland business community into Downing Street. You know, you've got the Northern Ireland business lobby very unusually turning against the DUP in Northern Ireland. The sheep farmers of Fermanagh in Arlene Foster's backyard saying, sign up to the deal. We don't want a hard border. So they've got a few cards to play, but um, it's from a quite a difficult starting point. I've always thought in the end she'll probably get the deal through, but it's a real uphill struggle. The sense that I've got is that the mood is with Theresa May, just not the arithmetic. That's mm. where we're at the moment. And finally, Alex, while we've sort of got you here, one thing I'd love to know your view on is 
What is the mood in Brussels? If this deal doesn't pass once, she will clearly have another run at it again. Maybe some tweet to the political declaration. If it doesn't pass for a second time and she's still prime minister, I think, which is a scenario we're going to talk about in a bit. And you have to look at either extending Article 50 for a general election or referendum. How willing is the EU to do that? Because they've always said it would have to be a substantive change in circumstances. And I'm sure a second election or general referendum would be that. But... Do you think they're willing to countenance that at this stage? Um, the first thing to remember is, even if they were, they wouldn't be talking about it at the moment. And, you know, Brussels is a leaky place. But asking people at this point about a plan B is pretty uh, unfulfilling business because they want this to work. And they want to make clear that this is the only option at the moment, because if you start giving hints that, oh, well, maybe we can come back to this, it will just collapse. So they're taking a hard line at the moment. If there is a referendum or an election on the cards, they would extend. I have not talked to anybody who would imagine that they would be very difficult about kind of maintaining this March deadline. There are limits to how far you can extend that. There are legal constraints as well. But I think the political willingness is there if there is a change of heart or approach or a potential change of heart in the UK. If this is a case of coming back to tweak a couple of things, I think that's a more open question If the Prime Minister wants to tweak a couple of things and then put basically the same package to the House of Commons again, maybe they play along with it. It's a bit easier to do with a political declaration. If it is a substantial restructuring of this withdrawal agreement, it's a much harder, higher bar. I think that's difficult. And the one thing I do pick up from people I'm talking to about the Plan B situation is it's quite hard to think through how you could restructure this package to bring together the arithmetic in the commons to find a majority. Because if you go one way or the other, you lose votes and win others, but not quite enough to cross that bar. And what worries me a bit watching from Brussels is there's a lot of expectation this first vote will go down. It might encourage people to think, well, I can vote against this on principle the first time. Mm. If you end up with a big, big, big margin against it, what's the answer? I mean, how do you restructure? If there's no answer to why this package came down, apart from everyone thinking it was bad, it's a very hard thing to pull back together. And finally, just to warm the cockles of the people's votes heart, if, say, many, many things happened, we had a second referendum and it was to remain and the UK decided to withdraw Article 50, is that something that is still even on the cards to remain or has really that ship sailed now the deal is done? From the conversations I have, I think most big member states would think the door is always open to the UK if it votes to stay in. You know, second to the need to maintain EU unity as a priority for this negotiation is don't get blamed for this going wrong. And the EU is not going to stand there while the British public say, look, we don't want to leave and say, well, sorry, you sent us a letter a couple of years ago. It's just not going to happen. And I think, frankly, for the EU to have that kind of prodigal son moment where the UK comes back and says, look, we looked at this and it's fundamentally in our national interest to stay inside this union, that we've had a change of heart. There's nothing that would validate that project more in their eyes politically than that kind of moment. At the same time, you know, 50.5% majority, I think they might be having a few second thoughts about it as well. Yo! 
You're listening to FT Politics, the podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. Once Mrs May's deal is signed off by EU leaders on Sunday, the Prime Minister will come back home to the arduous task of selling it to the country and, crucially, Parliament. The mood might be with her in Westminster, but the arithmetic is clearly against. 88 Tory MPs, or half the Conservative backbenchers, have said this week they will vote against it. Labour MPs seem unwilling to yield too, and so there is a general assumption the government will fail in its first efforts to pass this on around the 10th of December. So what happens next? Robert Shimsley, let's begin on the first assumption here that the deal may still pass. There is a very clear landing path. It's the theory that someone described to me as the bottom of Sir Nicholas Soames, that when Sir Nicholas Soames comes into the House of Commons chamber to his usual seat, there is no space for him. But by the time he gets to his bench, the space emerges there. Do you think there's any chance of that happening with this deal? I hadn't actually heard it expressed in those terms as a theory, and I think my mind is now discombobulated by working through those permutations. Clearly, the government is of the view that if it just keeps pushing, it can whittle away at all the numbers. Maybe it can frighten, scare and nudge everybody into line. It looks to me, as you said, very, very difficult. I mean, I take all the numbers and work on the basis that you start by halving them. If there's 88 MPs who say they're going to vote against it, I start on the basis that we're probably talking about 40. But there is one problem that Theresa May has created for herself. Because she has allowed talk of a second attempt at this to become general in Parliament, she has effectively granted her MPs, her own dissidents, a free vote. She says, look, you can vote with your conscience and vote down my deal because I'm going to have another go, at which point you can then say, well, reluctantly, I've had to accept that the country needs me to cave in, which is all well and good as a theory. The problem is there does come a point and... We can only imagine what it is, where if her deal is done by truly huge numbers, it becomes much, much harder for her to bring it back. So a defeat followed by some action and a second attempt is plausible, though certainly not certain. But an absolutely crushing defeat could be more problematic. James Blitz, do you agree with Robert and I that it looks very problematic, if not impossible, to win this first effort to get the deal through on the meaningful vote? And I should also clarify, that doesn't mean the deal is passed. That essentially say Parliament is nodding the deal through because there's a lot of legislation to come that also has to get through and is subject to scrutiny, amendments and all the rest of it. Yes, I think if you look at the debate that took place on Thursday where the Prime Minister came up with a political declaration, that was really tough going for the PM. She was under attack on all sides. I mean, people like Robert and myself have been watching Parliament for a long period of time. It can feel that there's a smell, if not to put it too crudely, of political death around the deal, frankly. I mean, when you look at a prime minister being assailed that much from all sides, it doesn't look like it's going to get through. I very much agree with Robert. I think it's quite strange that Number 10 has allowed this idea of a second vote to develop, not only because, first of all, the idea that markets will collapse after the first vote and then perhaps everybody will have their minds concentrated seems rather strange. After all, if markets think there's a second vote, they won't collapse, will they? And as Robert says, you're actually giving a license to people who might be vaguely wondering whether to back her or not to go ahead. This is the so-called TARP theory that was first defined by Rupert Harrison, who's a former participant on this podcast and former advisor to George Osborne, who has said essentially you have this first attempt at a deal, it fails to get through. And then some people in Downing Street believe that the reaction in markets and in the pound would then force the minds of MPs. The problem with that theory is if you talk about that theory and say that, then the markets and speculators and hedge funds will price that theory 
Louis in. And I think there was a very interesting column from Wolfgang Munchau we had on the FT on Monday saying about why markets will not react to a, a failed vote because they don't think a no-Brexit deal is going to happen. I think all that's right. I think the interesting thing to explore here is if Mrs May loses the vote on around the 10th, 11th of December, two things are then going to happen which are going to sort out where things will go next. First of all, that will be the moment for the arch-Brexiters, the European Research Group and others to try and crystallise these 48 letters and this motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister. And so the Prime Minister will be faced with that. And secondly, that is the moment for Labour to also raise its vote of no confidence in the government. Now, I think the interesting question in the immediate aftermath of losing that vote is what happens on those two fronts. If Mrs May comes through both of those, she survives the vote of no confidence in herself within the Tory party, and then she, the government wins the vote of no confidence, then I think you are into a, a different sort of arena in which she could then try and tweak the political declaration and come back for another vote. Clearly, if you're a Tory MP trying to get rid of her, you might wait and see what the Labour Party is doing first. Would you actually have the leadership contest before Parliament has its confidence vote? I don't think so. I mean, Parliament might do its job for you. So I think there's a bit of sequencing. It's yeah. interesting in this. So the assumption, I think, generally is that you have that vote, the government fails to get it through, Labour would probably bring forward a confidence motion, so Keir Starmer has raised that possibility this week. The assumption then is that Mrs May would win that vote because Tories don't want to then go into a general election because they'd probably lose the polls or or be all over the place, but it's very, very much on the line and the chaos I don't think would be reflected particularly well on the Conservative Party. So the question is what and happens after. So that confidence vote could come, I think, pretty much the day after. It it supersedes all other business. Right, so that then happens and after that vote, then you come to James's question about um, a vote in Mrs May. Say they get the 40 letters and after that confidence vote Sir Graham Brady comes out and said we're going to have a vote the day after so we're talking the middle of that week now and the question is does Mrs May win or lose that vote now if that vote was held now and obviously as we've talked about earlier in the podcast that's not going to happen in the foreseeable future because they haven't got the 48 letters. Do the dynamics change enough, Robert, after losing the Brexit deal vote but winning the confidence of the House for Mrs May to be sure of winning a leadership vote? I think it's always a little bit difficult to talk in advance of an event like that because they gather their own momentum. And so whatever you think is going to happen in advance, once you get into the heat of battle, things change. We're building hypothesis upon hypothesis here. But we assume she's lost her vote fairly badly. The no confidence vote taken by the Labour Party has been defeated. The Tories have gone into a confidence vote. Part of this is going to depend upon what she says she will do. In response to her defeat, if she says, this is the only way forward, I'll talk to Brussels and see if I can get a couple of commas moved, but essentially this is my deal I'm pushing forward, then I think it could be very problematic. But if she is defeated, the Conservative Party is going to be launched into a full leadership contest in which the different options for the future of our relationship with the European Union are going to be the defining characteristic of that contest. And so we're going to have another proxy war of what kind of deal should we have with Brussels while the clock continues to tick. And I think the other point is then, is this the moment where the momentum for a second referendum really gathers pace? So I think she would be in a lot of trouble. She may well fall, but you can't count on any particular outcome. 
No, I think that's true. And my working assumption would be the politics of the Conservative Party would be to take a harder line stance, not least because of the grassroots view, the increasing number of MPs who agree with what Dominic Raab has been saying over the past couple of days about the deal. And there's been this assumption we can move towards what's called a managed no deal outcome, where essentially a new leader would say, OK, this deal on the table, it's no good. We can't accept it. It's not going to fundamentally change. Therefore, we need to shift tracks. James, just very quickly before we go on to that, what do you think Mrs May is most likely to do if and when she loses that first meaningful vote on the 10th, 11th of December? I think her instincts will be to try and tweak the political declaration and come back one more time. That must be what she wants to get to. But as I say, I think she's going to face these twin storms that she has to get through first. Of the two votes. Of of the two votes before she can then come back and have a second go. I mean, in the end, remember that if she manages to come back for a second go, we'll have a lot more information and MPs will have a lot more information about where things stand. Corbyn will know his bid to topple the government has failed. Tory MPs will know their bid to topple her has failed. And if she can get to the point of having the second vote, that might concentrate minds at the top of the Labour Party. But what actually do they want to do at this stage? Because they ultimately, and Robert has written about this, I think, really strongly, is it's Labour that's got to decide. I mean, in the end, in a situation where Mrs May has been defeated, Labour has a lot of initiative. Much of the initiative will be with them. But they have got to crystallise what is their decision. Is it to pass Mrs May's deal with Comprehensive Permanent Customs Union, or is it to go for a second referendum? They really ultimately need to make that choice. This is the idea, Robert, that Labour could dive in and say, OK, we're going to put an amendment or a motion forward to say you've got to stay in a permanent customs union, and they know that would obviously split the Conservative Party, but you could see Mrs May accepting that, going back, rewriting the political declaration and getting a deal that the vast majority, if not big parts of the Conservative Party would back, the Labour Party would back, but would obviously create significant problems for party unity. On both sides, I think the problem now is that the second referendum has become the great big fly in the ointment in every single respect. If you are a Labour pro-European or even a Conservative pro-European and you don't want Brexit to happen, the second referendum is the only path for you. And as long as the second referendum is on the table, why should you settle for a permanent customs union or anything else? Because there's a better option out there. And I think it is both the possible rallying point for all pro-Europeans, but it's also a distraction for them. And the single problem that the people who don't like Brexit have more than anything else, and the one advantage that Theresa May has, is she is still fundamentally framing this choice. It is still at the moment her deal or no deal, because the other side of the argument cannot rally around a single position. And until they rally around a single position the likelihood of no deal or her deals are the only ones that are viable. And it's very interesting at the moment. I mean, I was talking to someone from the People's Vote a couple of days ago, making the point that they're really focusing on the timing of when to put down an amendment to try and get a second referendum. If they go too early at the same time as her meaningful vote, the chances are it will be defeated first time around. And they could actually get relatively few MPs voting for it, which then takes all of this amazing momentum they've built out. It takes it all away from them. And suddenly it doesn't look like the option it was. So they've got to get the timing absolutely right. They've got to get this deal on the floor. Then they've got to get Jeremy Corbyn to back the people's vote, which is something he patently does not want to do. And then they've got to deliver all the Labour MPs that there are there, which is also probably difficult. So it may be that the best chance that Theresa May has of getting her deal through in the end, if she can hang on long enough to do it, is to let the referendum argument play itself out and show that it can't quite get over the line. 
And what about this idea of a second run, James? What's the timing on that? Because obviously Parliament's going to hit the Christmas holidays quite soon. I think the nightmare for the government would be that the deal doesn't pass on the first go and then everybody goes off on the Christmas holiday with this impending threat of a no-deal Brexit and uncertainty. So would they try and have a second vote before Christmas or would it spill into January? I think one could start one's answer by saying the one thing we can be certain of is that Christmas is going to be ruined. <laughs> I think Thank you. Uh, I think if one looks at it, uh, the, the, timings ho, ho, are, ho. The, the, the timings are complicated. I mean, the vote will come 10th and 11th of December. That's the first vote. Mrs. May then goes to European Council at the end of that week. So if she's lost the vote, there is a chance perhaps for a bit of tweaking of the political declaration to have at European Council. She then comes back. Now, you can either have the second vote immediately before Christmas. That's in that final few days before the House rises. Or you can wait clearly until the beginning of January. But obviously, if you wait then you're creating a much more charged and worrying atmosphere because whatever your outcomes are, Mrs May's deal, second referendum, or a revised version of the deal, or manage no deal, you're getting very, very close to the March 29th departure date. And that's one thing that strikes me, Robert, is this idea of having a second go, trying to have an amendment from people's vote, trying to delay Article 50 to let these things happen. There is a very real danger that for all the confusion, we just stumble towards a no-deal Brexit and that we get to the beginning of 2019 and, you know, maybe the mm. Tory parties in the middle of a leadership contest, maybe Parliament voted down for a second time. If Parliament votes against Mrs May's deal twice... Then what happens? This idea that Parliament will vote to stop a no deal, I can see that happening. Clearly the will of MPs is against that, but I'm still not quite clear how it can be entirely avoided as some people seem to think. Well, no deal is the default position here. If nothing else happens, we leave the European Union on the 29th of March. Therefore, something else has to happen to change that course, either Mrs May's deal or an alternative option. Now, a lot of people do say that even if Parliament votes for an alternative option, even if you get that majority for a second referendum or Norway or stop the clock or whatever it is, the government has to carry through the legislation. There are people who argue that, well, Mrs May won't do it, the Tories won't take the legislation through, they'll just run the clock. I am a bit sceptical about this argument. I think if Parliament expresses its will, it will become quite difficult for the government to stop it, not least because it has to get the withdrawal bill through. As you said at the beginning, the legislation to facilitate this has to go through and Parliament could quite simply attach a rider to that that says this does not activate it without a referendum. Well, on that happy note, looking forward to a very Brexity Christmas, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Robert and James for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked this podcast and would like to see more FT journalism, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. Or you could very kindly leave a review on the iTunes store to say how much you love listening to us. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Detta and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.